If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it, when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or is sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am great, a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. I'll ask you to take your Bibles one more time, and in case they've fallen shut, uh, open them up once again to Malachi chapter 1. And as you're turning there, again, I... Let me just run this scenario by you, see if you can relate in any way to it. It's Sunday morning. Uh, your alarm clock goes off, just like it has every nine minutes for the last 54. And uh, you're dragging because you stayed up late binge-watching a season of some sitcom that you don't even really like, but around the third episode, you started to feel like it would be a waste of time if you quit now. You've already sunk all of that time into it. Anyway, it's the next morning. You sigh bitterly as you turn off the alarm, uh, resenting the fact that the weekend really only has two days and you spend most of one of them on religious you know, church obligations. And your, your liberal use of the snooze button has, has made it so that there's no possible way now to get the kids ready in, in enough time to make it for Sunday school. That window has closed. But with a lot of rushing and jerking and harsh words, you manage to make it to the worship service um, by the middle of the opening song. The next hour and a half passes in pretty standard fashion. You know, you essentially lip-sync your way through the songs. 
Uh, when the plate comes by, you scour the, the bottom of your purse for something to put in it. Uh, the prayer, you treat like another nine-minute snooze interval. And during the sermon, you look down at your phone more than you look down at the text. The, the closing song, now that one you sing with a little bit more gusto, if only because you know that in five minutes, you're going to be out of there on to more important things like season two of that sitcom. Now what I've described there, it might be a little hyperbole, but I think you'll agree it's some pretty weak worship. And if you regularly engage in it, let me just assure you that you're not the only one who is bored and disgusted by it. The Lord God is. As we continue our study in the book of Malachi, we, we arrive at another major complaint in, in this airing of grievances, a title that we've given to our exposition here. God is, God has a lot of problems with these people and, and they're hearing about it. He's uh, speaking pr in the first instance against the people of Israel and indirectly he's speaking to us. And, it, and it, this, this particular complaint is exactly this, that their liturgy is lame. He, he's rescued them from their exile. He's returned them from the places that they were captives. They've uh, rebuilt the city. The walls and the temple have been rebuilt and worship has been reestablished in the capital city. But already... After only the briefest period of religious revival, the praises of the people could only be described as pitiful at this point in time. They're simply going through the motions. Their religious exercises were just sheer duty. They were deprived of any kind of delight. It was just monotonous. And so justifiably in this passage, the, the people and their priests are roundly criticized by, by the Lord God. And just, just a word of warning for you, that criticism will be harsh. Maybe you've already gotten a, a taste for it already. But I want to also tell you that this criticism is going to be hopeful as the Lord previews what he's going to do to purify a people for his praise. And in addition to being hopeful, I think this text is also quite helpful in that it offers a sort of diagnostic. And by implication, it offers a corrective to our problem with lame liturgy. Now, the key is found in a phrase that's uh, repeated throughout this passage. And that phrase is, my name my name, if you're the type of person that doesn't mind marking up your Bible and making notes, then uh, I'd invite you to put a circle around my name. Every time that you see it in the text, you'll see it two times in verse 6, three times in verse 11. You'll, you'll discover the pronoun it that refers back to it in verse 12. Again, again you'll see this phrase in verse 14. 
And once you do those circles, you'll realize that this is actually the, the backbone. The name of the Lord is the, the spine that gives structure to this complaint about lame liturgy. Now, you're likely aware that in biblical usage, a person's name stands for the totality of their being. It's not just what they're called, it's who they are. It describes a person's character and, and it functions as a sort of shorthand for all of their actions, the things that they do, the people that they are. So, so understand that God's beef here is not that people are mispronouncing his name. That's something that the Jewish people were pretty fastidious about. That's not the big issue, that people are mispronouncing his name. God's big issue is that people are dishonoring and despising him. The totality of his being, his person, and his work. Now, A.W. Tozer was what we might call a modern prophet, small p. And uh, one of his bugbears was the state of worship in the church in America. And one of his well, well-known sayings was this. What comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He goes on to say, worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. I, I think he was on to something very significant. And this is essentially Malachi's message in this portion of scripture. And if I was to put this problem into a pithy little statement, it would be something like this. Your, if your liturgy is lame, you've neglected the name. If your liturgy is lame, you've neglected the name. And I, I hope that that pithy little saying isn't so trite as to make you think that we're not dealing with weighty matters here. The cure, I suggested earlier that, that this, this points us towards a corrective, and it seems to me that the cure is to become reacquainted with and re-enchanted by the name of the Lord. All that he is and all, that, all of the wonderful things that he has done and will do for you and for your salvation. That's the cure for lame liturgy. So let's work through the passage with, with this framework, with this backbone of the name of the Lord. We'll see three things about the name of the Lord, three Ds. First, it's due. The name of the Lord, let's see first, it's due. What is due the name of the Lord? What is he worthy of? And you probably already know the answer, but that's a bit of the problem. We know all the answers in our head, and it hasn't really affected our hearts. We, we know the answer to these questions, but the chances are that these truths have lost something of their impact. And we need a reality check. We need to be shocked back into understanding some basic truths about what the name of the Lord is due. And in order to get our attention, the Lord, through the mouth of his messenger, Malachi, he uses an argument that works from the lesser to the greater. 
This is a common type of argument in scripture, and I think it's very, very effective. Now, the lesser thing being what is due in terms of our human relationships. Okay, that's the first part of this argument. So look at verse 1. He says, a son honors his father, a servant his master. Now, that's the easy part. That's, that's the part that's supposed to be self-evident, but unfortunately, it is not self-evident in our day and age that a father is due honor. But if you were to have a, an Eastern mindset, and especially if you were an Israelite who, who was steeped in the Ten Commandments, it would be obvious to you. It would be abundantly clear that children are to honor their father and mother. In fact, the Mosaic Law stipulated that if, if a child was disobedient and disrespectful to a parent, that makes the kid liable in certain situations to the death penalty. And the reason that I know that factoid is that my parents often reminded me of it when I was a kid. Similarly, if you, if you can get past our modern objections, our, our sensi super sensitivities, I think, I think you can see pretty easily how a master might be entitled to the honor and the fear of his servant. But if that's true in terms of our human relationships, how much more so in terms of our relationship with our heavenly father? How much more is do our divine master. And so God's complaint is, I'm your father. I'm your master, so where's my honor? Where's the honor and the fear that's due my name, says the Lord of hosts. Now that's another repeated phrase in the text, the Lord of hosts. And if you're marking up your Bibles, you might as well Underline those, the Lord of hosts, that's repeated over and over. It's in verse 8, 9, 10, 11, 14. It means God, the commander. God, the commander of angel armies. So there's another little helpful image that, that we kind of just take a sideways run at here. It's kind of like a, not a main point, but you think about you think about this, that if you want to know what the name of the Lord is due, all you have to do is consider how the angelic host respond to their creator and their commander. They, they fear him. They honor him. They serve him. 24-7, you can find them surrounding God's throne, and they're covering their eyes and their feet, and they're crying out, holy, holy, holy. You get a good glimpse of this in, in that passage that Ethan pointed us to earlier in the service, Isaiah 6. That's, that's what is proper. That, that's what any creature that's thinking properly, that's how they respond to their creator and their commander. This is what he's worthy of. This is what our holy, righteous father and master is perfectly entitled to. The Psalms enjoin us to ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his name and to bring an offering when we come into his courts. That's what he's worthy of. Or in the, the words of a more recent psalm, I like this song from the Baptist hymnal, 
worthy of reverence, worthy of fear, worthy of love and devotion, worthy of bowing and bending of knees, worthy of all this, and added to these, you are worthy. Father, creator, you are worthy. Savior, sustainer, you are worthy. Worthy and wonderful, worthy of worship and praise. The name of the Lord. What's its due? Well, in a word, honor. That word in the original Hebrew is based on, on a root that, that means, well, the word is kavod. And it means heavy or weighty or substantial. And some of you older folks may remember your hippie stage. You know, when your typical response to things was heavy, man. Now, that's that is probably not the most accurate way to describe, say, the foreign policy opinions of some stoned 17-year-old. But, but it's the perfect way to describe the Lord and his due. He is heavy. He is of substance. And the honor that he is worthy of is in keeping with that weight. You don't trifle with the Lord. You don't simply waltz into his presence. There's a weightiness about him. He's heavy, man. And the point is, and I think you can see this pretty clearly when it comes to honoring your parents and, and giving your best to your boss, but if these lesser things get their due, why not God, who is far greater? This is God's grievance. You are not giving me the honor that is due my name. But actually, it's even worse than that. He says to the priests, you despise my name. I hope you can see from that, just putting that together, doing the math, that there's no neutral ground when we're talking about honoring the Lord. And speaking of math, um, picture this if this helps. Uh, picture a number line, okay? Picture that honor is plus 10 on the number line. Failure to honor, we, we think of that as what, a zero? But it's not. Failure to honor is minus 10 on the number line. It's if you're not honoring the word of the Lord if in the name of the Lord, you're despising it. There's no neutral ground here. So that's the charge to the people, starting with the priests, their, their leaders who are leading them in worship and mediating their sacrifice. That's the charge. You despise my name, far from honoring it. So let's consider that under our second point about the name of the Lord. Let's see it's despising. And I, I think you can probably understand how hard it must be to hear such a charge. You're the people of God. You're a priest, for goodness sake, and you've dedicated your life to the service of the Lord. So then it might, you know, it hurts. It's harsh to hear the accusation that you actually despise the name of the Lord. Might not surprise us then that there's a little bit of pushback to this proposition. But you say, 
how have we despised your name? The thing is, though, you know, the further we push into Malachi's prophecy, the less and less you're going to be surprised to hear that pushback. You know, we're, we're quickly already, even in our second foray into this first chapter, we're quickly coming to understand that whenever the Lord lays a charge against his people, this is their stereotypical response. How? Prove it. And these objections are almost always introduced by the formula, but you say. I don't know if you've got another way to mark things in your Bible, but you can start marking those phrases as well. Not just the complaint that the Lord lays, but these all these objections. But you say, and you'll see three of those in our text today. So we're, we're becoming suspicious right away that these are not just innocent requests for, for further explanation, Lord. No, these are defiant, hard-hearted, rebellious objections. But the Lord's so gracious, and for his part, he indulges all of these objections, and he gives the people further explanations in this case, he's going to spell out for them what it looks like for a people to despise his name. So, so he paints a picture for them. Okay, the, the scene is set, and here we're in the courtyard of the temple in Jerusalem. And it's a, it's a standard day and time for worship and for sacrifice. There's no, there's no special festival or whatever. This is just a, a typical worship service in the temple courts and you see all kinds of people milling about and they've brought their required offerings and whether these offerings are for thanksgiving or for sin or whatever this is what they've come with they brought their birds and their sheep and their cattle perhaps they've brought baskets full of the first fruits of their grain and they plop these down on the table it's referred in this passage to the table, the Lord's table. And this is really um, the, kind of a, a place where they would be, these offerings, these animals would be inspected and butchered in preparation for burning on an altar. Now the law was very, very clear that sacrifices and offerings that were brought before the Lord were to be the first and the best. They needed to be pure and unblemished, spotless lambs. And, and really, you can understand why I think spotless lambs are the only appropriate substitute for sin. Not to mention, a, a holy and righteous and pure God is worthy of nothing less. You know, the offering has to in some ways match who it is that you are appealing to. But as these animals are being plopped down at the table of the Lord in Malachi's day, it was, it was plain to see that they are blemished or blind or diseased or as verse 13 says, taken by violence. So here's, here's a, a sheep that's stained pink with teeth marks from a wolf around its hind shank. It's like an Israelite family is on their way to church and they remember, oh, right, we're, we need to bring an offering. And then right at that exact moment, they see 
on, on the side of Route 36, a deer that's been hit, and it's just now beginning to bloat. And they say, perfect, perfect timing. That'll work. And they load it in the box of their truck. And then a little while later, plop it down on the table of the Lord. Now, the priests, who are charged with mediating between God and the people, who are, in, who are charged with ensuring that the worship is in keeping with the holiness of God and in accordance with God's righteous requirements that he's outlined in his law. What are the priests doing? Well, you can picture them kind of standing behind the table as USDA inspectors. Or to change the metaphor a little bit, you can picture them if this helps you more, like airport security personnel watching the screen as, as the bags get scanned. And these priests, you know, they see, a, they see something with the distinct shape of an AR-15. Or they see a, a suitcase go by that's got neatly stacked bricks of cocaine. And they're like, it's fine, it's fine, you know, keep it moving, move it along. This is the priests gimpy goats an old cow that was set to be shot tomorrow but instead was sacrificed to the lord today a bushel of apples that are bruised and blighted it's fine yeah come on set it down keep moving but the one receiving these sacrifices says it's not fine you're polluting my table you're despising my name but you might say, how so, Lord? How, how does this constitute despising the name of the Lord? So let me take the Lord's tack and give you a couple of examples from, from human experience, if you don't mind. Example number one comes from uh, Dumb and Dumber, which is, in my mind, the greatest movie that's ever been made. And it's the story of two morons, Lloyd and Harry, who uh, skip town to get away from their landlord and uh, paying the, the gas bill and rent and that. And they take an epic road trip to Aspen. And Lloyd wants to go because of a love interest. But the main reason that Harry agrees to go is that he hits rock bottom when their beloved parakeet, Petey, is decapitated. You'll have to just stick with me for a minute here. Now, at some point down the road, Lloyd pulls out a bag of chips and starts munching on it. And Harry's really ticked off because they're on a very tight budget. And, and he's like, where did you get that? And Lloyd said, no problem. I paid for this out of my own personal money. I made 25 bucks before we left by selling some stuff. He sold some stuff to Billy, the blind kid, in 4C. And among those things, come to find out, is... Petey. And Harry is incensed, not to mention confused, since the parakeet had no head. And in my favorite scene of the movie, Lloyd gives him this look that is like the perfect combination of totally annoyed and insulted even. And he says with this look on his face, I took care of it. And then the scene shifts to a little blind kid in a wheelchair saying, pretty bird, pretty bird. <laughs> and he's stroking this parakeet 
that has a head duct taped onto it. Yes, Monica, that's what, that's the reaction, that's the only right reaction is to put your head down and be horrified by it. Dumb and Dumber are not just two morons, they're two sociopaths, okay? And it's, and it's very difficult to, to watch that scene and it tells you everything that you need to know about these guys and what they thought of, of Billy, the blind kid in 4C. I have some Haitian friends back, in, back home in Hamilton and they're wonderful Christian people and they've become quite successful in their medical careers and they have a, a heart for their home country. And so they often, like probably every year, they make a trip to Haiti for medical missions or just general humanitarian type efforts. And through the year, the mother in this family, she collects clothes and, and other items from benevolent Canadians that she can take with her when she goes and give to people in need. Now, it drives her absolutely batty when she opens up a bag of clothes that reeks of must and mothballs and she pulls out shirts that are stained and threadbare. She takes it personally. And I can understand why. Because that actually is a statement about what people think about Haitians. What we think that they're worthy of. Judging from our gifts, we, we must despise these people. Somewhere in Africa, there's a tribe of men wearing caps with the Buffalo Bills logo that says Super Bowl champions 1991 or 1992 or 1993 or 1994. <laughs> Doesn't matter. All of them were, they were pre-printed just in case. And then when they weren't going to be used, all of them got shipped to some developing country because, you know, we need to get rid of our trash and these people don't know anything, and what do they care? It's like if you took an Operation Christmas Child shoebox from the foyer and you packed it with an old soccer ball that was already deflated because of dry rot. Or you throw in there an old pullback car that your aunt got you from Cracker Barrel 10 years ago that's got all of its gears stripped out of it because you pulled it back all the way down the hall. You don't use it anymore, so it can go to Mozambique. You know, those, those kind of gifts tell us a lot about you, but they also speak volumes about how you, how you feel about impoverished children. But I'm confident that you would never do that. And that's kind of the Lord's point when he brings up these human examples. You wouldn't dream of doing that to your father or your master. And here's another example in verse 8. He says, try pulling that stunt on your governor. Again, for this example, you're going to have to travel back in time, you know, to a different place and a different culture. We still might give a gift to our governor today although it probably, it's probably much rarer. Like if I had, if I had the opportunity to, to meet Governor Hochul, I might present her with like a leather-bound copy of the Constitution or something. I, 
But that's not really the idea here, okay? The, the idea is that people, people come before their rulers and they come bringing gifts. And maybe it's the best stuff from your region. You know, there's a variety of reasons why people would do this, but the main one is so that they could ingratiate themselves to, to this governor. So that when the time came in the meeting for them to ask him to do a favor for them, he's going to be much more inclined to grant it. So here's the scenario that Malachi sets up. Suppose you bow, you have, you are privileged enough to have an audience with your governor and you come before him and you bow and you hand him this, this basket and you say, governor, I'm, I brought you a bottle of wine from the Finger Lakes region. Sorry, it's, I, I think it's been corked. So it, it'll taste a little off, but you can get the general idea. And I also brought you some Nunday mustard. Uh, you'll, have, you'll have to scrape off some fuzzy green whitish stuff from the top of it. But once you do that, I think what you'll find, the underneath stuff is quite delectable. And here's some Lane cider. It's last year's vintage. Um, and their famous cinnamon donuts, I brought you a bag of those. They were day-olds when I got them, which was a week ago. Uh, and the Lord's argument is, do you think your governor is going to accept that? Do you think he's going to accept you? He's going to, if he doesn't laugh, he's going to be furious. He's going to think maybe you're trolling him. But then if he finds out you're serious, then he's going to throw you in the slammer. Now, in verse 9, the Lord says, now do me. Now do me. Try, try that scenario. Here, here's another lesser to greater argument, okay? With the kind of gifts that you give to the Lord, is he going to accept it? Am I going to accept you? Am I going to show any kind of favor to you? And the answer, by this point, should be obvious. He has absolutely no pleasure in that stuff. In fact, it's the very opposite. This is wearying to him. In, in verse 10, we get to listen in. Listen in. It's like a, a glimpse in the throne room of heaven. And we find the Lord fantasizing, so to speak, that someone from the Canadian government would come and put chains around the doors of the church so that no one would be able to offer any other sacrifice to him. He's sick of it. And, and if only there would be a snowstorm so that the church was canceled, so we could get a break from your wearisome worship. It's disgusting. But you say, that was then, this is now. How do we despise the name of the Lord? We, we're not bringing lame lambs. Well, when you come into his presence tired and depressed, when you, when you fix yourself up better to go to Applebee's, when, when you sing his praises with a barely audible voice, when, when you offer him the leftovers after all of your expenses and all of your entertainment, when you bore yourself to sleep when you pray to him, when, when the time that you spend with him is the last five minutes before you nod off to sleep for the night, and you're nodding off before the five minutes is up. When you prioritize anything and everything over him, friends, that is lame liturgy. 
and it constitutes despising the name of the Lord. Now, that's a pretty heavy indictment. No wonder the prophets were persecuted for saying this kind of stuff. But it's actually very gracious of God, isn't it, to challenge us and to expose our sin so that we would forsake it and so that we would embrace him. It's not the Lord's style to just condemn us. He's always pointing us to the solution for sin. God is always pointing us to the Savior. And the point all along has been that if our liturgy is, in fact, lame, then we've neglected the name. The solution, then, is to have us understand afresh the glory and the worthiness of that name. And this is where the text turns us in in verses 11 and 14. And so we turn and consider the same thing under our third point about the name of the Lord Consider, friends, its dominion. Its dominion. Through the mouth of Malachi, the Lord points the priests and the people forward in time. He's pointing the people to what he's going to do in the future. He has them look beyond themselves, look beyond the present to a time in which there's going to be a people that are zealous for his praise. He's going to have a people who uniformly honor his name. Look at verse 11. Capture this glorious vision. From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered in my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations says the Lord of hosts. Now, just notice, I want you to notice the scope of, the, of what the Lord's going to do. It's described in, in that one verse variously as the nations in every place, or I think most beautifully with this phrase, from the rising of the sun to its setting. In other words, from east to west, And like many of you, my son Jonathan has been praying regularly for a friend of his who is detained in another country. And he, John, Johnny all almost always mentions in his prayer how, you know, if he if he's praying before bed, he knows that his his friend is actually just now waking up and ready to start his day. Or if Johnny's praying before school, he knows that his friend is is wrapping up his day. And in both places, you understand, the name of the Lord is being honored and called upon. That's, that's the point. I want you to see the scope of, of what the Lord has done. In Haiti, for example, people with well-worn shirts are lifting up holy hands in worship of the one true and living God. In the Congo, people people who mistakenly think that the Buffalo Bills are some amazing football dynasty, they they correctly believe that the Lord, their God, is the great king over all. And, And these people are offering him their entire lives. This is what the Lord, from Israel's perspective, will do, and from our perspective, has done. 
So we ask, how has he done this? How is this possible? And the, the answer to that is going to emerge with a lot more clarity the further we get into Malachi. But there are a few hints of it here in our passage. And I'm thinking of one particular phrase in verse 11. It speaks of a pure offering. You know that there's only one priest that has ever lived that can offer such a thing? There's only one priest that's ever lived that has offered this, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that pure offering is nothing less than himself. And you understand, don't you, that he went to the altar of the cross as the pure and spotless Lamb of God, the perfect substitute for sinners like you and me. In our place, condemned, he stood And he was condemned for all of our sin, including all of the many times that we have offered lame liturgy. The countless ways that we, by our attitudes and our actions, have actually despised the name of the Lord. But Christ was despised so that we might be honored. He died so that we might live. He was raised again gloriously three days later later for our justification and because of that pure offering on behalf of sinners the father has highly exalted him and has bestowed on him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the father And the words of that great hymn draw out the clear implication of all of this. When it says, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Or, if you prefer, consider the the conclusion that Romans 12.1 comes to. This was our call to worship this morning. After the Apostle Paul has spelled out the glorious gospel for the first 11 chapters of that great book, he then says, drawing out this implication, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And this means, of course, that because, because of what Christ has accomplished, I can, and indeed I must, be someone who engages in worthy worship. Not lame liturgy, but, but service that's actually acceptable to God. And this is not, you understand, a, a once a week, an hour a week deal. This is a whole being, everyday offering that I make and that you're to make. And this is the, this will blow you away. Your life, your all, is an offering that is pleasing to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Indeed, he is the great king, and his name will be feared among the nations. And the point of this passage is that given the the universal dominion of the name of the Lord, we best get on board with honoring that name rather than despising it. Amen? Amen.